This is one way to educate and bring the drone community together. Welcome to the Flare Delta Podcast, where we bring in leaders within the drone community and discuss their insights, perspectives, and unique journeys through the unmanned industry. I'm your host, Randall Warnes. In this episode, I sit down with Mike Pahel, chairman of Interdrone, the annual drone conference. We discuss much more than workshops and exhibit halls as Mike shares his amazing perspectives on the industry and where he sees it heading. All right, so before we get talking about drones, Mike, I want to talk to you a little bit about who you are outside of the drone industry, what kind of things you get into when you're not working. Well, if you asked me a year ago, I might, I might know the answer to that, but it, it's a little bit harder after the last year with Interdrone. I spent, you know, I got elevated to chair, spent almost all my time on it, and just really making relationships. You know, I already had you from like the year prior, but I, I built out great relationships with Chris Carodi, Richard Lopez, Sharon Rossmark, Michael Blades, just getting to know all these advocates. And I kind of got re-impassioned as far as how much I love this technology. And I've never been a part of anything like that. I've worked in tech shows for five years. I guess we'll get to the real answer now. So I, I always had like a love of technology, what great engineering can do when you put, you know, couple hundred minds in a room to solve a problem, what they can produce. I always found that enamoring, but there's nothing like drones. It really kind of does feel, uh, and I I know people will give Chris Anderson crap about this comment, but it does feel like a new internet for me as far as something that I could be a part of that I think will actually transform the way we understand our world. So in my free time, I actually, I do Python programming, data science stuff. I like reading manuals, like learning how things work. Uh, I like taking them apart and putting them back together. So I'm kind of at home in, in this industry. So we have a nerd through and through. Yeah. Perfect. So uh, you've been with Interdrone from inception or kind of walk through uh, you know, the, your pathway to Interdrone and then how that's been since the, the sale of Interdrone in 2017? Yeah. Yeah, so kind of walk through that journey. I guess 2014 was when I was working at BZ Media. We were doing four or five tech conferences a year in different spaces and Ted came up with the idea for a drone conference. Probably heard it from somebody at one of our other conferences, like, have you tried drones, right? Because he was always looking for the next thing, being a single business owner. And I actually, I did the market research. I said, are you insane? We can't do this. So I came from the the unbeliever space, the skeptic. And then we, you know, we were going to do the show because he wanted to do it. And, you know, that's part of the risk. You do some good ones, some bad ones. But I went to Exponential. It wasn't called Exponential yet. It was just AUVSI's drone show, right? And I said, wow, this is actually something. I don't know how we could possibly compete with whatever this is, but it's actually something. And then we started engaging with the market and seeing what it was about. And at the time, it was still the DIYers, right? You know, 3DR was, was still in the mix big with, like, are they going to be a competitor to, to GJI? And, you know, it was a struggle to get both of them at the show. And truth be told, like, we thought we were going to hit hit the wall up until a month before the show. We only had like 600 people registered. Ted's out there promising 2,200 to the vendors. Like, oh my God, this is going to be our worst face plant ever. And I don't know what it is. And it's still the way now with registration. But the last month just skyrocketed. I guess we had the right vendors. We had the right session content. People were... You know, the buzz was going around. Amazon was kicking up dust and, and all that. And the show was a success. It was such a massive success that I guess it put eyes on us. 2016, the show grew by 50%. You know, this is prior to part 107. Like, I think 
it had just landed and we were able to host a part 107 session as a workshop at 2016 and it was probably inaccurate information for all we know everything in the drone industry is inaccurate information especially in the early days mm-hmm yeah it's still a little bit that way yeah you know? i know you have to <laughs> yeah. you have to really parse through all the information with a fine-tooth comb and to dig out what is the actuality of everything and i think that you're in a unique position because working with all these vendors and having to produce content and having to see where that content comes from looking at your demographics of who's attending you know things or you see things that maybe not everyone does and the feedback that you get about presentations and all these things what have you actually learned did you come to an event and actually learn something you have access to data that not everyone is is privy to yeah i think it even the sponsors right so it's always a negotiation because what is an event it's something that's trying to pull people together you know uh, my my svp right now johanna morris she always says if you don't believe in a person-to-person contact you're in the wrong industry and i think that the value of of what an event is is bringing people that have separate opinions about things that they don't even know are separate yet into the same room to kind of realize a mutual reality of where the next steps are afterwards. So, I, I mean, just to go and watch that transformation, let's, let's talk about 2017, the show got acquired. By the time we got to Emerald, we had to explain, them they didn't, explain to them that they didn't buy a photo show. That's how much this industry has changed in that time, right? right? And granted, my photo sessions are still packed. Why? Because the image is still central to what a drone does. You know, I was sitting in the construction session here and the thing that came up was it's a room full of people who are supposedly working on construction sites. None of them were setting a baseline when Douglas Spotted Eagle asked, like, how many of you are setting a baseline? No hand got rose. So I think there's a disparity between what people know, uh, what we think they know, what we're selling, what the vendors are selling, versus how much the, the people out there in the field need to be educated on this technology. I mean, we have some really serious people using this stuff, but your standard over here working for you know, X energy company versus this standard over here at energy company on the other side of the world, totally different. And that would not be the, the case if this was a mature technology. So we still have a lot of, lot of room to go. Right, and I've always considered Interdrone and, and you know, all opportunities when you can gather the industry together to start sharing best practices and you know, talking about how we can work better together, but I think that the problem is, is that there's so much protectionism in this industry, where if you've really found the secret sauce, you don't want to share it because there's so much competition out there with part 107. It's so easy to be a commercial drone pilot with utilities that are starting to use the technology. They don't want to share it with the other utilities or maybe don't want to share it publicly. And I think that there's just so much protectionism about the use of this technology where shows like yours are one of the few instances where you can see people with their badge on their shirt walking by and you know they're interested in drone technology or why the heck would they be here, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, I mean, you know, one of the things I, I've been starting to say a lot, and I, I try to give credit to Jeff Steering because I think it was him that said it, but safety can't be proprietary. And in some cases, we can easily make the, the case for sharing standards and protocols among people who, or the manufacturers, even among the software providers, I think they're starting to realize that too. We're starting to see some key partnerships there or at least the sharing of base code because ultimately you can't reach that enterprise buyer unless you have a couple of boxes ticked that cover their liability mm-hmm. and all of their worries, even if they're illegitimate ones. You just have to be able to say this is triple certified, secured, la di da. I think the harder case, the proprietary equation is that last mile, like how are the users actually using it? So that's harder when you're saying you know, Shell versus Valero 
wanting to even talk about what their drone program is doing. And what needs to happen for that, and I don't think we're there yet, but I think we're close because a lot of them have started speaking you know, at some shows, is that they have to realize that everybody's using it now. Now I need to start bragging about how good I use it. So what have you found as being involved in the drone industry now since 2015 was the first Interdrone? Right. Yeah, 2015, so, so we started in 2014 doing research. Right, so in that span, what have you found to be the biggest evolutions of the drone industry that you've witnessed? You already mentioned, you know, people imagining it's a photo show or thinking about the photography aspect of it when it's so much more, but are there other things that you're seeing like that? The biggest evolution is the culture, I, I would say, actually. So the technology and what we were doing with it, you could almost prove every use case that's still being sold before Interdrone started. Maybe not at scale, you know, you couldn't get the, the data accuracy down, but the use case was pretty much there or baked elsewhere. You know, you could talk about refinement, but ultimately culture, right? So do, does that end user even know airspace? So the aviation culture that I think didn't really respect the drone culture coming up, and in some ways they still don't. They were not willing to give up the keys to the kingdom that easily, and they weren't great at educating. I'll be flat out about that. Uh, but I think that that end user themselves realized, hey, I'm never going to get respect in this world. I'm never actually going to get these jobs and, and replace that helicopter, right, for, for whatever, or, or these traditional survey methods unless I show my knowledge here. You know, they came to reach them in the middle. I think though, even we've seen a washout since then, where even the people who were starting to learn enough, they're saying, I'm not, be I'm not able to make my business on this. I didn't learn enough in three years. I'm just gonna go back to something else. And as far as profitability, if you look at the DSPs, most of them are not. If they are, they're usually in geospatial, and that almost everybody else is pulling in-house. And those in-house programs, I'm willing to bet are only marginally better in performance compared to even what the amateur DSPs were doing. Mm -hmm. It's like we're starting over again. I, I would say that's the big thing. I feel like we're starting over again in a lot of ways. What makes, that, so because you run a drone conference, how does that starting over mean good things for the future? And how does that starting over present challenges to what you do? The only thing, the challenge there is that those starting overs are starting overs, but looking in different directions. So the common vector of drone is almost just like an outer layer rather than the center point of focus. You know, each of those companies or each of those verticals, they have their own vocabulary for the same thing. You know, you could, same word will be three different ways used differently, or even the same word will be interpreted differently by the end user. Ultimately, I think, the challenge is providing content that's actually centrally amateur, right? Like, here's how you get started. That's actually still the majority of the industry, right? But also providing advanced content that keeps people wanting to come back the second or third year. And here's the thing, that leap usage, like getting started at Interdrone to actually doing all of the, the, the qualifying things that make you an expert over a year's time, by the time you come back, there's no intermediate content that would actually satisfy you. Right. So that's the challenge, is like providing an environment that can provide for people who are established, but also the person who's just getting started, because ultimately I never will forget providing for that person, because that's where I got started. Mm -hmm. So I, I, because I speak at shows and international shows, Interdrone obviously, the, the, when you're talking about that intermediate content, 
I have sometimes tried to push the envelope and present something a little more technical and you just see people glaze over. And it's, you know, for me as a manufacturer or for, for anyone that's going up to speak, the ROI is engagement yeah. at the end of the day. And if you start seeing your, you know, if you have 100 people in a room and you see that they're disengaged, you step back and you're like, okay, let's start from basics. This is, you know, how you turn it on. Here is, you know, the basic level of data you can expect. And it seems like that reset happens every year with these drone trade shows. It's new faces on the floor. They're generally the ones that are just getting started. And those that have a little bit of season maybe aren't the ones sitting in in these conference in the in the sessions. Yeah. Do you do you believe that's true that in one year you go from newbie the next year you should be a speaker. Maybe not one year, maybe two though. We have seen cases where it was one year. So like, um, I think it was Officer Martel with the Nevada Highway Patrol. Mm-hmm. I might be wrong, but you know, he came on site where, you know, in uniform with his gun in 2016. I think he just heard about the show and said, I'll stop by. He became a speaker the next year because he had launched one of the first drone programs for a law enforcement official in Nevada. So he literally was the only person that could speak to it, mm-hmm. right? I mean, that's probably a rarer case, but we definitely have had speakers who attended uh, and then, be, or, you know, attended two years in a row and then they, they got, they said, I'm better than this guy up on, on the stage. And we said, prove it. Right. And you'd be surprised how, how well they were able to prove it, like their superior knowledge on the thing. And yeah, we said, you know what, they didn't get that great of a rating, you're probably right, here, take the stage. Well, what I tell people internally at FLIR is that speaking is the greatest learning opportunity you can put yourself in because you have to hone that, you have to sharpen that ability to talk about your technology or what you do in a very concise way, and you repeat it over and over, and then you you know, not only believe it, but it, it just is part of you. And I think that it's a good challenge for anyone that is getting into this industry that if you're doing something special, let's talk about it. Tell the world about it because that's the only way that we learn is from someone to stand up and share. Actually, it, it, it's interesting. You know, there's a lot of truth in that. If you want somebody to actually understand where you're coming from and, and prove themselves wrong, like when you know they're logically wrong, ask them to explain themselves rather than attack them and you'll watch them work through the process, right? So there's a lot of learning that goes to figuring out how to communicate to another person. And, you know, it's a treasure, as you know, like you, you love being an educator, right? For sure. I love having a faculty of educators, like, cause they educate me. I mean, everything I know is, I'll say it secondhand. You know, ultimately my job then becomes, you know, I go to talk to this expert in their camp and I say, hey, do you know what Randall's doing over at FLIR? You should talk with him because he's working on this and you're working on that and I don't think you realize how much you're working on this together. We're wasting labor. We're wasting man hours towards the future by you guys not communicating. I I think collaboration is like the sexiest thing that drones could, drone industry could figure out. We're really bad at collaborating. We're really bad at extending our hands across the table and being like, hey, you're working on something sort of interesting. I'm working on something sort of interesting. Let's bring that together and actually make it meaningful. And I think it's just because everyone's thinking, you know, I have this great idea. I'm going to get some capital, venture capital money. I'm going to grow into this big thing. I'm going to sell it in three years and I'm going to go on vacation for the rest of my life. And I think (laughs) that if we all just get very super hyper realistic and we think we all need each other, we need, we need DJI's 10,000 pound gorilla status, 
and their million of airframes that are flying around in the national airspace not causing problems to justify the safety features and the safety fact faculties of everything. But we need software providers to make that data useful. We need drone service providers to make it so that it's scalable and, and geographically accessible. Uh, there's so We all play a role, but once someone dismisses one of those roles or multiple of those roles and thinks the most important thing is my battery charging station. My mo the most important thing is lighting. It's like, no, work with everyone. Yeah, well, I'll tell you, open source always wins over proprietary. Maybe not today. You might get three years at a proprietary, but ultimately it, it loses. So if, if you're going to talk about the 10,000-pound Gorilla DJI, that's the only thing they have against them. But everything else you say is right. They're at economies of scale that they could actually produce results that other people can't, that help make the case for this entire industry. And, you know, I think that's one of the big issues with all the other drone manufacturers that they have to figure out is that how can they work together to make as much standard pieces? Because until they, they can certify a certain level of reliability across the farm, you actually don't have your Android of drones. Mm -hmm. You know, that case hasn't been made yet, and I'll tell you why. Because there might be an Android-like ecosystem of multiple manufacturers, but there's no Samsung in that ecosystem. Because there's usually a dominant player even in the secondary ecosystem, and we don't have that yet. So, controversially, we've seen big companies step into the role of potentially competing in the commercial space with drones. Intel, Lockheed Martin, there's, there, there will be more. Do you think that that's the best route? Is a Samsung-sized, Samsung-like company coming into the drone space and providing that solution? Or do you think it's going to be one of these startups that's just going to get it right, hit the right notes, and, and grow? I don't know. It would be very hard for a startup right now. I know we have some fans of Scadio out there. I'm a big fan of their engineers, as you know, and I think you are too. Also, but I, I also talk with people in the, the drone code ecosystem, and they provide these solutions that are very specific. I'll give you one that's not even commercially focused. I think it's the Russians, what are they? Uh, oh, co something copter. Uh, I'm gonna, I wanted to give them a shout out. But what they do is they provide these little all-in-one kits to, to schools, mm. right? And that kit has all the computer vision technology you need to learn how to, from a block level, program the drone, you know, like instruction code, to actually learning how to program that drone with the actual code. And it's this amazing use case that can scale, is not anywhere in DJI's territory really at all, and it's going to provide a future for this industry. You know, there's other use cases like that. That you and and here's the other thing: DJI is the Toyota of drones. It's you know it's the sedan, but that doesn't mean other industrial applications are they even going to be interested in or be able to scale and provide the white glove service that that industry needs. And if you're a manufacturer, that's where you should be looking, and most of them actually are. Well, and that's where I think fixed wing is really interesting. When I was an employee of DJI, we talked about like never fixed wing. We would never go down that road because DJI should stick doing what they're good at, what they know. They're successful at making multi-rotors. That's their their fundamental, like that's that's who they are. And do I think that that's changed a little bit over the last few years? Maybe. They haven't done fixed wing yet. Maybe that's a good thing, but fixed wing manufacturing, you're not competing with the, the, the 10,000 pound gorilla. You're office, offering a completely different uh, value proposition. So I, I'm surprised or not surprised. There's a lot of VTOL, like one and dones and things like that, but 
I think that there's so much more value as to what you're saying, where you're not going against the sedan, but you're trying to be something elevated beyond that. Yeah, be a truck, be a sport utility vehicle. Yeah. Be something that is for specific, I mean, be an off-road ATV, you know, be something different entirely, a trike, you know, be the sport model, whatever it is, there's other options, you, you know, you don't have to be the Toyota. Right. That That's the advice I would give just from seeing people try and hit the wall. If you go up against that, you're not proving your value as R, you're, you're already mentioning the competition, yeah. so to speak, Yeah. you know. I think that's wise. Speaking of wisdom, who are you interact with a lot of a lot of people because you run this show? Who are the people that you feel are either the most influential to how you see the industry or the most interesting people that you sit down with and chat with? Like if we were if we were to fill a room with three other people that you wanted to to talk to about the industry and make it move forward, who who would you bring in? Well, I have to give Chris Carotti a shout out for being just an amazing mentor over the year and just also his his connections and sometimes his cynicism is helpful too as far as the drone regulation side of things like he knows everybody in that space he can connect you with the right person and also he's just got the years on him as far as like seeing how these institutions on the regulatory side actually operate you know for all the the hope we had years ago with how the FAA would respond to things we had some great wins. Nobody was expecting Part 107 to come in as fast as it did because they were already behind, right? But then we're also seeing what we feel are big delays on remote ID. And, you know, if you want to be up on top of that coverage, he's there. So I would definitely give him that. You know, Richard Lopez from Hensel Phelps, like just for a story of somebody for when there was no real route for an enterprise user, he made it. He really made it from scratch. Plug away, my friend. Yeah, Richard. And the Randall one also. <laughs> that, that, one was, that one was pretty good that never made the air. Oh, no, we, we did one after. The new one. The new one. Okay. Yeah. yeah. The one that never happened was good, too. Yeah, that one was probably better. It's much better. Yeah, Richard Lopez is definitely, because he figured out how to get the waiver. He started his own LLC at his own, at, while he's working at Hensel Phelps because he knew that like it would be a hard sell to the legal team. And he did that to try and get his waiver through. And he... He pitched that against, you know, a third-party company he hired to see if they could get the waiver through. This is how committed he was. You know, he was, he was literally A-B testing if he could get a waiver through the, the FAA, what's the best route. And just where he is now, having, like, the first waiver to fly over people with a parachute, para-zeros equipment. You know, if you follow that guy, you'll figure out what you need to do to get your stuff in order to, to launch a successful drone program. And then number three, Sharon Rossmark because the work she does from every level, just educating kids in STEM, to bringing women and connecting them in this industry, to just being you know, an absolute amazing person, always supporting me, always supporting the show, always supporting everybody she interacts with. She just figures out how to connect people. And you know, honestly, we need more women in this industry. And we're, I think we're luckily, we're doing better than tech in general, but you know, Interdrone shouldn't be outperforming with 12% female attendance. We should be saying we need to do better with 12% female attendance than what the industry is providing, which I think is 5 or 6%. Right. You know, you just need more opinions that are diverse in the room. So with Interdrone being a drone show, but maybe the drone show, 
how do you differentiate Interdrone from you know the experience that you'd have at other shows, and, and what is really the model behind Interdrone that makes it unique? I think it all goes back to facilitating conversations. One thing that we do well and, and outperform on is connecting the right people to even move the industry forward, right? And when when you leave Interdrone, you leave with the knowledge you need to actually execute on your business, right? You're not. You can get a pitch at any drone conference, and I'm happy to provide that experience too at mine, but I'm always happy to work with vendors like you to actually provide educational content that has not only helped that person with their business, but for, for you as the brand ambassador, you've created a relationship that is gonna sustain over five to 10 years, and maybe to infinity. We're not gonna build an industry without that, so you know, I, I think we provide an actual personal experience that is hard to do at a show of our scale. We're never going to let go of that. Not, wa- not on my watch. Perfect. So I, I have five fast questions that you haven't seen. So just give me the first thing that comes to your mind. We'll try to get through them. First one, what does the drone industry need more of? Uh, positivity. Hell yes. Yeah. Great answer. Uh, so what does the drone industry need less of? Don't um, say negativity. Find <laughs> yeah, a different answer. Can't go polar on that. Yeah. Um, I, I think it needs less of tearing each other down. Not necessarily straight negativity, but like we're all here to win. Like win on your own terms. You don't need to tear the other guy down. Okay. Fair enough. What industry or end user type will be the largest user of drone technology in 2025? So we'll say five years from now. Gravel inspection. <laughs> We're going to look at rocks. I thought the, the negativity thing was something we needed less of. No, um, you know, I think insurance is doing, is doing great right now, and that's not going to go away. And I think it's the least sexy uh, side of the industry as far as, like, if you're to talk to investors. But, hey, it's the actual industry. It's got the most pilots, and they're doing amazing work. Okay. What is a good news story about drones that maybe you've heard recently? What happened with Notre Dame? So, female drone pilot providing situational awareness that probably helped save the bell towers. And then even just uh, the involvement of drones as far as mapping that building prior is going to help with the reconstruction. So, you want to talk about an easy win. Like, none of the people that were involved in that were thinking like, you know, oh my god, I'm flying a drone. How awesome is it? They were just doing regular dirty drone work. And look at the societal value that we get out of that. Great answer. The last question on the fast questions are name three bands or musicians that you think everyone should have heard of even though it's not not necessarily it doesn't need to be something underground it could be anything but just three musicians that it's like this is mike approved well i feel like nirvana is like one of the major food groups like if you grew up in the 90s and i was only seven when their seminal album came out like you you just missed out on the 90s who would I go with on the rap side? It would definitely be Wu-Tang Clan. Can I say all of them? You could, yeah, you yeah. could just say Wu-Tang Clan. I mean, if general. I have to pick a favorite, it would be Method. Okay. But I'm going to go with Method Man, because then I could claim Red Man and Method Man at the same time. That would have been a better question. Just who's your favorite Wait, member of Wu-Tang Clan? Or can you name all of them? <laughs> I, I couldn't. Oh, man, I used to be able to. Rayquan, Ghostface. Ghostface Killer. Um, you God. ODB. Yeah, got rest in peace. Rest in peace, brother. <laughs> yeah, Red, that's where you Red could, Man, Meth Man. Yeah. No, Red Man's not there. 
We was though. He's an honorary member. He's not. Sir, I, that yeah, I he's not, yeah. honestly, it, after this, we're gonna pull up the Wikipedia. I should do it right now. Yeah, but you can see he's not there, man. We'll see. If he's there, if it doesn't say honorary members and then him, then mm-hmm. I'm probably gonna win that bet. Uh, and so, last one. Uh, last. Oh, uh, last. Artist. Last artist, yes. Aphex Twin. He's the Mozart of electronic music, and everything that he did in like 1987, they are just starting to make popular music out of it now. And he did it with all analog gear. You were you were a straight shooter with those. Why? Well, no. It's, I mean, sometimes people are like, "Oh, I got to make sure to put in my favorite one." So here's a fourth, or you know, <laughs> it, it was you were you were ready to go. So what do you think is the be- next big thing for the drone industry? It's not sexy again, but data integration, right? So, and this is a problem for literally any piece of new technology, even that email service platform I was talking about before mm-hmm. we got on the cast. Integrating with an antiquated stack is never a fun process. You know, nobody's running GraphQL out in enterprise energy land. No right? one knows what GraphQL QL is, is on the podcast, right? I'll exactly. stick with that. At least yeah. I don't. <laughs> So, yeah, or AP, API endpoints or whatever. Yeah. Uh, so that's going to be the hardest thing is figuring out how to actually make this data useful. Who's doing that work? You'd be surprised. Sometimes it's somebody like Kitty Hawk. It's kind of subtle. It's only happening to their enterprise client because they're building a custom solution. And that's the sort of thing that we need a, a, a better shared code base. So contribute to drone code. You know, uh, you got to pick one. I'm going to pick one. It's, it's that one because it's just the largest right now and it's interfacing with the most usable technology out there. So we need more hands, we need more developers. I just want to see them actually making that software. And it's all economies of scale, right? If you look at VR technology, right? It's still pretty useless if I put my, my personal opinion on it's it. It's fun and novelty though. Yeah, if that's gonna to get to a point where it's actually useful, you have to have hundreds of thousands of man hours on it the same way that we had almost millions of man hours on to make the internet usable. Remember when it was crap? Yeah. yeah. So even when we knew the core principles, nothing as much as really changed. It still took a lot of like tweaking and, and refinement to get responsive design that works on both your phone and, and your laptop. And we're not there. We barely have 10,000 developers in this ecosystem. I want 100,000. I want them tomorrow. So that's why Sharon Rossmark's important. STEM. Right. So the last question I got for you is for people that are newly getting involved in the drone industry, what advice would you give them to help accelerate them so they get from point A to point C or D quicker? Find a mentor. And, I, you know, the thing is, there are a lot of people in the drone industry that they're happy to talk because, you know, there's only so many nerds that actually care about this type of thing, this cross-section of, you know, software development, hardware development, and AV, traditional aviation. If you go on the forums and find that person, they'll talk to you for hours for free before, you know, they, they won't, you won't have to pay until you get on-site training. So that, that's my biggest thing of advice is, and it, and it just helps build this ecosystem of experts because then three years, because you went through that experience with that mentor, you'll be mentoring somebody else. And that's how we get the chain going and pay it forward. Great answer. Well, Mike, I appreciate you sitting down with me. I'm sure I'll be back on your podcast in the future. You'll be back on mine and we'll just keep the love going. Yeah. All right, brother. Thanks for listening. Make sure to head to FLIR.com Delta for more episodes and downloads. Also, subscribe or follow to make sure to catch all the FLIR Delta content. If there's a topic you'd like us to cover, someone you'd like us to sit down with, or a way we can make this podcast even better, make sure to send us your thoughts to delta.podcast at FLIR.com. 
Again, thanks for making Flare Delta part of your connection with the drone industry.